Welcome in to another episode of Patrick Jones Baseball, where we find the best tools to build the best players. On today's episode, we have Steve Merriman. Steve is a longtime pitching coach. He has coached at the major league level, at the college level, at the high school level, in the private sector. I believe he said he has coached at every single level of baseball except Division Three and maybe NAIA. So we, uh, we get someone on, on today's podcast who has uh, a ton of experience, to say the least, in baseball and, and working with pitchers at all levels. So it's, I mean, I love getting someone like Steve on just because of his experience. And I think Steve is so highly regarded in the baseball community because not only does he have a lot of experience, but he has a growth mindset. He's continually pushing himself to get better. He's continually learning and you know studying and all these th- things that are so important to continue to grow and evolve as a coach. I appreciate all those of you who have subscribed and rated, left a review on iTunes, does not go unnoticed. It's awesome to be able to, to go and, and read different reviews that people have, have left. And also, if you if you enjoy this show, if you get value out of this podcast, of a, out of this episode, please share it with just one person. This show continues to grow because of word of mouth, because of people sharing it on social media or in you know just for, via text, email, whatever it is. So if you enjoy it, please share the show. I, I would really appreciate it, and it helps us continue to grow. Now is my episode with Steve Merriman. All right, we now welcome on Steve Merriman. Uh, Steve, thanks for coming on the show today, man. Uh, Patrick, thanks for having me. So we just had your son, Troy Merriman, on the show um, last week when this episode comes out. Crazy story because I didn't even know he was your son when I recorded the episode, which was, I mean, I'm still blown away by how that situation evolved. But my first question to you actually is about your son, Troy. And Troy's a hitting coach, University of Finley. He played college baseball there too. Um, but there's a lot of dads out there who coach their kids and, and you know, watch their kids. And so I think it'd be kind of a cool place to start where you know, what advice maybe would you have um, for, for dads out there and coaching their own sons. Yeah, Patrick, I think that's uh, such a great question. It's a great direction, not just a question, because I think more and more as I've gone out and, and watched games uh, for a number of years, I've, I've watched um, parents, not just dads, but parents in general, um, get too close to the situation. And I think that's a, it's a, pretty deep dynamic and I know that's not really where your question is going but we could address some of those pieces along the way I guess um some of my advice would be this um you know there's a there's a difficult time frame for parents when that player begins to move up when they go from 13 you to 14 you and they go from a certain size field to a little bit bigger field there is a tremendous physical adjustment period that that has to take place for players and and no player is exactly the same um, from year to year and no two players should be compared to each other and just because Timmy and Johnny can handle that big jump it doesn't mean that you know Mike and Mark are able to handle that jump and I think parents need to be mindful of some transitional times in players' lives and careers. Um, 
puberty. When is it kicking in? Uh, the physical part, how much are they donating to the physical part of getting stronger and being able to manage some of the changes? So one of the, one of the pieces that I would say is really as a parent, trying to listen more to your player and let them talk. The, the problem I see most of the time, this is just generalized statements, I get it, but most of the time I see parents want to immediately jump in and give advice and tell the player what to do and start telling them how to do it. Then it spills over into trying to tell the coach what to do and tell the coach, uh, give coach advice. And I know that in most cases, coaches are dads coaching their kids. And so there's this natural tendency to feel that there's some uh, predisposition to keep certain kids down when other kids are playing the same position and it's the dad who's coaching. I get all that. Um, but I think parents really need to try to listen more. Um, you know, we, we have two ears and one mouth, I think, for a reason. We should listen twice as much as we talk. And I think as you develop that relationship with your, your son or your daughter, um, you, you should be able to let them speak and not be judgmental when they do speak. You know, when the player feels something, listen to what's being said and, and then try to not communicate in a, well, this is what I think you should do mode, but interesting that you feel that way. That's a, that's a good perspective. Maybe think, are there other ways you could look at that? Turn it to them and let them give you perspective versus you always trying to create that perspective for the player. Mm. Uh, and it's hard to do when the kids 12 and 13, but even at 12 and 13 and 14 and 15, they have feel. I used to say, to my wife, we would talk about, well, how come our kids, and we have three kids, boys and two girls, they all play college sports, uh, and I'd always say, how come they aren't hanging out with so-and-so and so-and-so? I really like those kids. Well, come to find out, those kids were doing the things that you didn't want your kids doing or want my kids doing, but because my perception was they were good kids, our kids know who they should yeah. probably be hanging with, who they shouldn't. <laughs> But as parents, we, we sometimes don't always listen. And I, I was early on, I would tell you, I, I always told the kids, okay, I get the first five minutes in the car after the game. And then after that, it's your time. Well, that was probably wrong. I probably should have got the last five minutes and given them the first 20 minutes. The other thing is I think parents don't set time limits on when they talk about things and how long they dwell on a, on a play. Um, more parents should want their kids especially younger, to make more mistakes trying to go really hard and go really fast. If you're running really hard and really fast and get thrown out at second base, good. That's okay. Um, if you're tentative and you stop, start going around first base, you're not sure, you're unsure, that's not good. But most parents don't understand the depth of that uh, when they start to look at the game. The kid should swing as hard as he can to hit the ball, if he, especially younger. If he swings and misses, that's okay. Keep working at swinging hard and swinging fast and then understand why maybe you're not able to swing hard and swing fast because there's something in your body that's not allowing it. But that's that's for down the road, you know. I just think that parents need to, to let their kids make mistakes, help them understand making the mistake going hard and going fast because you've heard it in coaching. I'd rather you, I'd rather you make more mistakes playing hard than being tentative and that's really the point 
that's what that's what parents should should try and do and communicate that with their player. Well, I was listening to you on a, another podcast before, and one of the things that I really liked, and this kind of actually relates to what we're talking about, is you, know, you said timing and tone and how important those two are. And that's kind of similar to even if you're just coaching your kid, right? You know, that when exactly do you bring it up to them, the tone that you have and, and all that, it all kind of relays together. Well, I'll tell you that that didn't generate from coaching. That generated from being married. <laughs> <laughs> You know, how you say things, so the, the tone that you use when you say something and the timing when you say it can, can make or break what's going on in that moment. Uh, it applies to relationships, not just marriage relationships. It applies to friend relationships. It applies to, you know, uh, parent relationships. Um, and I, I think that we just have to be more aware of that. Um, and, and I haven't perfected it by any means, um, but it is something in coaching that I, I feel like I do a, 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 an awful lot is when am, I, when am I saying what I'm saying to the kid and how am I saying it? Um, and sometimes that comes from them approaching you with something that opens the door. I, I've, I know that in, at the lower levels in the minor leagues, all the way up into double A. But I know even in college, there's a lot of things that you, if you jump right in and try to say something that's going to push the kid in one direction or another. And we have to understand that just like in the minor leagues, all the way up to the big leagues, even college kids have somebody that they are tuning into more, whether that be the guy that does lessons with them when they go home, um, or maybe it is an advisor. Um, I know that was the case more in pro ball, but it happens in college too. I'm not one to want to turn those people off to having a voice. I don't, I don't tell a college kid, you know, Hey, you don't need to listen to them. You should only listen to me. I didn't do that. And some people didn't understand that or don't understand why I didn't do that. I, I feel like more information is available at, at, people's fingertips, especially young people's fingertips, right? You can hit Google and Google something and get an answer in 0.0003, you know, milliseconds, and you'll get thousands of pieces of information to sift through. Information is not the problem. It is being able to decipher the information that's going to work best for that individual. And, and I think when I'm telling the player or saying what I'm saying to the player and, and, and how I'm saying it are so critical for development. And it doesn't always mean that you're going to have the kid take what you say immediately. Um, I think people kind of find themselves in three different buckets. A lot of times one, the one bucket, I call it the pioneer bucket. They're going to do anything and everything you tell them. Yep. They're going to run and do it because they want to please. They're going to try. They're going to, they're not afraid to, yep. I think this will work. This will work. And they jump on it. Then you have the, you know, skeptic bucket. You know, the skeptic person says, eh, I'm not sure that's going to work. I've heard somebody say that to me before, or, you know, I, I, I'm not sure about that. And they, they sort of sit on the fence. Those guys and girls need more time to get to the point where they are, are free enough to deal with whatever comes from having to try something new. Okay. They usually will get there. The, the cynic says, I'm not doing that. I've been told that before. It doesn't work for me. I don't like that. It doesn't feel good. I'm not doing it. So they never even give it a shot. 
I would take more, you know, people in that skeptic boat because while there is a, a bit of unsurety, they will try. And what I found with those people is they will find something within what they do, whether they take the whole nugget that you give them or they take a piece of the nugget and adapt it and apply it to themselves, they find what will eventually work for them. And that usually becomes very solid in, in moving forward. So I, I, I think it's about when I say what I'm saying and how am I saying it is, is just a, such a critical piece. When you have someone in that, in that last bucket who just does not want to listen to you or anybody else, what's, what's the approach with that player? Because you know, every coach has kids like that and they still want to be able to help them. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I, early on in my coaching career, when I was uh, in the minor leagues with the New York Mets, I had a kid that came from, um, you know, a, a, a mid-major division one was a starter on Friday night and became the closer on, on Sunday. And, um, you know, there were some things he just didn't want to try. And, uh, he, he wasn't used to being a starter in a routine, you know, on a five day for sure. Cause in college it's, it's seven day. And, and, uh, I, I backed off. Um, I let him come to me when he had questions. I know for about the first, you know, five or six starts, it was about three or four innings and he was done. And uh, he was a fairly high draft pick and, um, and he struggled. I, I let him have to go through the struggles um, because until a person is willing to say, I need help, most people fail in things because our, our stubbornness gets in the way and we don't want to say, I need help. Um, can you help me with this? And I let him go. And over about five or six starts, he, like I said, three, four innings, maybe an occasional into the fifth, but it wasn't going well. And he finally came and said, Hey, I, 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 I think there's some things I'm feeling and what do you see? And it was more collaborative. There was more of a working relationship and he ended up doing very well. His name was Bobby Parnell pitched in the big leagues was a closer for the Mets for several years. Um, and I think he came out of the college of Charleston or something like that, but you know, until you let those guys work through and girls work through some things at certain levels. Now I'm not talking about a 12 year old or a 14 year old. They may not know, but I'm talking about a 16, 18, 22 year old. They, they, they may be stubborn and say, I don't, I don't need that. I don't want that. And, and if they don't, if they fail, they're going to be more apt to come to you. If they succeed, then you have to find other ways where you can continue to help them grow. They've obviously worked through that wall or that hurdle and work forward from there. Don't think you have to be the one in charge of, oh, I helped them get through that hurdle and get over that wall. No, they, players have to be able to do that themselves too. Yeah. So patience, I mean, is, is something, I think that's something I see even on the hitting side is, you know, you want to, you see something wrong with a player, their swing or they're struggling. You want to, you want to go try and help them right away and give them things to think about and all these things. And I think more times than not, you just, you got to be patient, especially with those kids that you're talking about. I think that's a great, great point and great, great piece of advice for a lot of, a lot of coaches out there of just, you got to let them fail. It has to feel like it's coming from them. 
Otherwise, it probably won't stick. Well, and the, the hard part, I, I know that some coaches would push back and say, oh, well, we've got to win this tournament or we've got to win this, this high school game or we've got to win, you know, I, you, you cannot sacrifice uh, the development of a player um, in situations. That means if you have to do that, then maybe that player's not in the right situation at that point. And that's where communication has to take place. Hey, I want you to succeed, but you're not ready to handle, you know, whatever the scenario is. Maybe it's a hit and run. Uh, maybe it's, you know, it shouldn't be bunting, but it can be. Some kids have a, a, a you know, affinity for, oh, man, I got a bunt. I don't want a bunt. So they don't want to do it. I mean, but, you know, you have to put the kid into the right situation to succeed and then give them those opportunities, um, like you said, to be patient. You've coached at every level of baseball except uh, D3 and then maybe NAIA. And I know, I'm sure you just love coaching and love working with players, but is there is there a level that, reflecting back on your career so far, like, man, that was, that was a ton of fun. I really, really enjoyed that level. Well, I don't think it's, it's uh, one level because I think that, you know, at, at times it's about that environment and what you've created from a culture standpoint. My daughter was a college softball player. I coached her 16U softball team. A number of those girls went on to play uh, in college. They were 16U. Um, it was a lot of fun uh, coaching uh, girls. And I will tell you this, learn there's a big difference between coaching boys and coaching girls. And to me, the difference is uh, not in talent, because I had some very, very talented girls, and I've seen some amazing uh talented girls in softball for sure um at, at various levels the difference that i found is that you know when boys play good they feel good you know if if they go one for three in a good game and and or they've made some really good defensive plays then they feel good afterwards if they go oh for three and then play great whether their team won or lost is irrelevant on both sides they they don't feel right girls are the opposite if they feel good then they will play good and so it's a different approach. Um, and I, and not to say that there aren't some guys that way too, you know, if they feel good and they're listening and getting into the zone, jamming to the right music or whatever. But I, I, I found that to be the case. Um, so I, there were some times or some moments that just, you know, coaching 16 U all the way up to, to being around big league guys and, and being at the big league level, you know, that it, it is about seeing, players succeed that's when I've had the most fun is when you see the guy go do something that you've been working on and you know that they've struggled with that situation or scenario and and they've conquered it um you know it's just uh that's probably the most satisfying to me um kid I'll give you an example Brian Bannister who's uh, a director of pitching with the San Francisco Giants. I was his pitching coach with the New York Mets. Um, and he, for a time in double A, was, was really struggling and needed to develop another pitch. He developed a cutter. And the next year, got an invite to big league camp, had a pretty decent, you know, Arizona Fall League prior to, and got an opportunity to make the rotation out of spring training with the, with the Mets. Um, you know, during the years where they were pretty good. I mean, Pedro Martinez, Tom Glavin, Billy Wagner in the bullpen, Aaron Heilman, who pitched at Notre Dame, was 
was the setup guy. I mean, some, some really talented dudes. Um, but I know that when he first started learning the cutter, it was about five, six starts where he just got beat up. I mean, got his butt handed to him and, uh, watching him the next year transform and use that pitch. And it helped him pitch in the big leagues for several years. I mean, he, he might have eight or nine years of big league time. I know he was with the Royals for a little bit, but his mentality was, I'm going to do what I need to do. And, and I'm going to keep going. He didn't stop. And seeing a guy fight through those things, uh, a player fight through what they know they've struggled with to succeed. That's when I've, I've had the most fun. That that's when I'm, I'm, I'm the happiest, I think as a coach. So he, he you mentioned he, he kind of worked on a started having a cutter, wanted to implement that. How do you go about if you see something in, in a pitcher, be like, hey, we need to add this pitch to your repertoire. How, how does that process go? Because I'm sure that happens. It does, and it's a lengthy process. Uh, at times, it can be, depending on, again, you go back to who that player is. Are they a pioneer and ready to jump in, or are they the other way? Um, it's a process. I think in most pro situations, they'll tell you that a guy that has talent and has stuff uh, but may need another pitch is a simple grip change away from making big jumps. Doesn't mean they're automatically going to be big leaguers, but they're a simple grip change away from being able to develop them. When I've had younger, um, you know, and I'm talking about high school kids that I've worked with, because I, I do a lot of lessons and did a lot of lessons in the off season and, and all that. Um, some of those guys want to be able to see it become instantaneous if i change the grip on my curveball or my finger pressure on my curveball i want to see it instantly and what i remind players is, is that if you see it once you know it's in there mm. if if you don't see it for a little bit and i'm not talking about five throws as a little bit i'm talking about some time because a lot of it happens in the mind like it, it, it the guy has his mind tells his body how to work and his body then imparts what action it's going to get on the ball. Um, and, and that you have to work through all of those pieces. It isn't just as simple as ball flight. Um, the, the brain sending the signals and telling the body what to do the body, then carrying it out to, to impart that into the movement of the ball, but it does take time. And if a guy sees it once, then it's there. And I keep telling them, if you saw it once, it's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time and working with it. Um, showing them in a, in a 3D model sometimes about what's happening with the ball flight when they do it right. Um, because people are more visual, especially players. Players are very visual. They want to see it. Some, most people don't feel it. Like I have, I have guys right now that, that, reach out to me and, um, you know, are pitching either triple A or big leagues and ask questions and, you know, they don't feel things they, they need to see it. So you have to ask for video and you have to ask for, for numbers from TrackMan or from, you know, Hawkeye or whatever they have access to, because they've got to be able to see where there's the difference before they can feel it. Okay. And it takes time. It's a process. Okay, so that's what I was going to follow up my thing. is like, because eventually you, they need to be able to feel it, though, right, for it to actually show up. Yes, yes, they, they do need to feel it. And, and you know what? Sometimes it takes a, it's a process for them to be able to feel it. 
um, they might see it well before they ever get to feel it. And they go, well, I don't necessarily feel it, but I see it. So I just am going to be able to continue to do that. And that's what they do. Um, you know, I, I know both in hitting and in pitching and, and fielding everything in this game, a lot of it is about repetition. You've got to continue to do something over and over again. And, uh, and it'll eventually it becomes a part of their routine and their movement pattern to be able to execute it more consistently. What advice would you give to a high school pitchers out there? I mean, you coached, you know, in college and pro ball and these guys, you know, they want to move up, you know, first step is obviously getting to play in college and everyone knows, you know, throwing harder is better. Like we, you know what I mean? Like we, everyone knows that, but what advice would you give them from just a pitching standpoint for high school pitchers out there on what to focus and work on? Yeah. And the velocity part of life. Uh, but I also have had guys that throw 95 to hundred that got squared up all the time too. And they, they got hit all over the ballpark. Um, I, I, that's a whole nother conversation and topic that's pretty deep. And we could talk about that maybe way down the road. Most important for me, number one, have a good routine with how you prepare to, to actually perform. You cannot just show up, throw the spikes on, do a couple little stretches, go throw 20 or 25 throws in a pre-throwing program or whatever you want to call it, and then jump on the mound and expect to be successful for any consistency. Have a good routine and a good preparation that leads up to that. The next thing I think is really, really important, and that is your ability to, to throw strikes and to, to be in the strike zone. Um, you know, I don't care what the velocity is. If you get whacked all over the ballpark, you're not going to pitch much. Um, or if you can't throw strikes, you're not going to pitch much and you can PR all you want. That guys all want PR, PR, PR. Great PR all you want, but you're not getting significant innings to pitch. And, um, you know, I, I, it's just one of those things that I think guys don't realize that the ability to command the strike zone, um, with your fastball, you can, you can move the fastball around. And you can have a differing mile per hour up to about anywhere from eight to 12 miles per hour or more just by moving your fastball around. Because you know, as a hitter, that for every ball length I move in to the inner part of the plate to a hitter, that perceived velocity is increased. And the more I move away, that velocity is decreased. So if everything stays the same, I'm, I'm increasing a mile to two miles per hour for every ball length I go in to the inner part of the plate to even in off the plate to moving away to moving just off the plate. That's, that's a huge significance. So if I'm 90 and I get four or five ball lengths from the middle of the plate, 90, and it's about two miles per hour or so, that's 10 miles per hour. That's 100 miles per hour, right? in perceived velocity going in off the plate if i go the other direction that's 10 that's a 20 mile per hour differential <laughs> i'm between 180 with the same 90 mile per hour fastball and i i, I know i may over uh, oversimplified that but i think for for the purposes of understanding it kids need to understand the, the value of that um and throwing a bp fastball so it's a fastball but then i throw a bp fastball where I'm not trying to maximize the velocity with it and I'm pulling some velocity off and in a certain location, 
that makes that that perceived velocity change even greater. Moving on the rubber can change the perception for a hitter because of how you're throwing it, where you're releasing it from, and what you do. Um, I, I really just, you know, think that young kids need to understand the value of that. And then I, before I would, with a high school kid, worry about curveball. I know curveballs and sliders are, are, I think, are the travel ball beauty. You know, they, they go immediately to a kid that can spin it because it's going to help them win games. Before a kid ever does that, I would teach him a changeup. I would teach him a, 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 a high school kid that's a freshman, sophomore, for sure, for sure. And, and, and then a junior needs to say, well, I've never had a good feel for a changeup. Learn a good feel on one. Because I think the changeup, I think you're going to see the changeup take a more prominent role in the pitching circles here over the next five years. And it, it comes in waves. The changeup was big 20 years ago. You know, um, then it went to the cutter then it went to the split, you know, and, and, and it fluctuates, but I would say to a high school kid, control your fastball to different parts of the zone first, throw strikes and, and then develop a changeup. But prior to that, develop a good routine and preparation to help you prepare. And you can say, well, I also play shortstop or I also am a catcher. Well, doesn't matter. Throwing is throwing. Pitching is nothing more than pure throwing. If I stuck a shortstop, on the mound and ask that kid in pro ball to pitch, he'd throw a hundred pitches. Would he be prepared for it? No, because he's only used to playing shortstop. He has a throwing routine that they do. And it's probably much, much, much shorter. Um, but it's, you know, different. So it's, there's really no difference for me. That's yeah. That's all. That's fantastic advice for, for everyone out there listening to this. I've heard you talk about uh, Roger Clemens and how, you know, maybe he, at times he didn't throw necessarily an actual changeup, but he would just take some off of his fastball. I mean, as guys, is that, that's another way if you can't find that feel for the changeup to still implement different speeds. Yeah. And I think guys go through phases. Um, you know, they lose a particular pitch curveballs changeups are feel pitches um sliders splitters and and fastballs are not field pitches you just grip and rip and let it go um and guys go through phases where they they lose feel of a particular pitch and i know it was several years ago i had looked at the numbers the the top velocity differentials on a fastball you know roger clemens was number one back when he was pitching so that's been a number of years now and i haven't looked at this thing since but it was like 21 mile per hour differential for him from his top fastball to his lowest fastball. Wow. And guys will tell you, you know, that pitch at high levels and, and pitch regularly, they, you know, they have to use that change of speed. You talk to anybody that does any game planning at the major league level of which I've done at the major league level, you are trying to find a count and a place where you can get a fastball into a particular hitter, not in, in meaning in the strike zone in on him, but in the zone at all, because hitters are geared to hit the fastball. And it's hard for guys that game plan at that level. And I think it's that way, even at colleges sometimes for them to find where do I, where can I go with the fastball? But it, it, it's at, at the college game. You shouldn't have a problem with that. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you, in order to be able to change speeds, you can also do that by changing eye levels. Um, so, you know, the, the down in the zone, 
has for years always been said, this is where you want to live. But I think if, if, if people know, it, it is a good place to be, no question. Depending on the guy's swing, what the guy shows you with his hips, certain guys do certain things with their hips and their bat barrel, how they start and where it goes that tell me exactly where they want the ball. Some guys want the ball down, some guys want the ball up. Um, and that guy's movement pattern when he swings tells me that. But you, you have to look at where can I pitch in the strike zone that gives me an eye-level change where that hitter has to lose the perception of the strike zone and how can I then change speeds maybe even in those same locations. Um, and so yeah, you mentioned the game planning right there, and I want to take the opposite approach. If you were – you're obviously a pitching guy, but if you were a hitting coach – and you were game planning for for pitchers, for a pitcher, specific pitcher, what advice, knowing all of everything you know about pitchers, like what advice would you give the hitters? Huh. Well, one of the first things, I, because one of the things I tell pitchers is, number one, what's the location that I have the most confidence in throwing a pitch, and what pitch is it that I can go to that location anytime I want to and I feel good about it? Then, secondly, can I get a secondary pitch to, to also follow into that location okay so from a hitting perspective is what is this guy's go-to pitch when he's in trouble that that'd be the first thing what's his go-to pitch and what seems to be his go-to location and now as you move up levels i mean you can't do that at probably under 17 you maybe i mean maybe you can with certain guys but at 18 you um you know and up i think pitchers become more consistent with what they throw and where they throw it. Uh, and that'd be the first piece of advice. What's his go-to pitch? What's his go-to timing? A pitcher's timing will change between pitches. He'll work a little quicker when he's throwing a fastball and he'll work a little slower when he's throwing an off-speed pitch. So if there's more time in between pitches, huh, I bet, I bet when it gets more than, you know, nine seconds, he's going off speed or maybe more than nine seconds. It's a fastball. It just depends on the pitcher, but beginning to see tendencies and learn patterns and habits. Pitching is about patterns and habits. And, and so is hitting. It's about routines, patterns, and habits. And my job as a pitcher or my job as a hitter is to try to offset that guy's, you know, habits and timing and his patterns. How often do you think pitchers are, are tipping pitches that you, you can pick up on? Well, we, we, I'm designated a lot of time to that. Uh, I've had guys uh, help do that. Uh, I mean, at the major league level, we had guys using um, iPads to take pictures of guys set position uh, in, in, with different pitches. And we, we would look, we use a chart to look at any tempo or timing changes. You can get that information off of data too. Uh, the time between pitches. I, I had an app that I would use called pitch grader. Um, that I could plug the data in the CSB into and I could see timing between pitches. And, and so I would use that with our guys too. You, I think guys tip more than most people know um, because it is patterns. That's why I think you see guys do certain things. Um, you know, if you look at a guy like Mike Messina, he used to bend over quite a bit and then come upset. And there are guys that, that do that now. There are guys that go up over their head before they come back in to get set there are guys that turn and kind of give you a half turn 
to the, the, the hitter, you know, so that they can't, they try to sneak attack so that they're not tipping something with the glove or the forearm, the index finger, the, you know, there's so many things that you could pick up on. And I believe that a lot of guys that glove tap, you know, they pop the ball in and out, um, you know, tip pitches quite a bit. What are you speaking of like, you know, being able to notice that kind of stuff, what are you focusing on as a pitching coach when your, your pitcher is out there on the mound during the game? Like what couple things should you, should coaches be, be kind of looking for? Well, one of the things that I, I would do during the game is to look at how a guy was using his stuff and what was happening. That, that was probably first. A lot of talking about what a guy's doing tipping, I, I always felt like sometimes had to come from other guys watching because as the pitching coach, so locked into how they're approaching every hitter and what they're doing. And I really believe that too many pitchers focus on trying to adjust one through nine in the order instead of making one through nine in the order adjust to who that pitcher is. That's why I say to the pitcher, what do you do best? What's your location best? Do you match up and off speed there? You know, like, and can you move something? I call it making X's at the plate with our guys. Can you make an X at the plate? Um, and I think that helping to see what pitchers are doing would come from other guys uh, on the side. And um, I was focused, number one, on how are they using their stuff. Then I was focused on what was happening within the delivery. Do I see changes in the delivery? Are they losing their legs? Are they becoming more upper body oriented, which would happen often with, with some guys? Um, are they when you, when you say losing their legs, does that mean like they're just coming up early? Yeah, popping up. Guys pop up early, uh, or or guys would get away from a good back leg position. Um, you know, looking at what's happening with that that post leg foot. Post leg is the leg that they would get to the top of the lift on. Um, if that back foot was adjusting or changing, that's telling me they're doing some things in their delivery. So I would look at at some of that. Um, I would also look at what's going on as it goes up the chain, what's happening when they get to release. Are they, do they seem to be casting more? If you're casting more, you're losing your legs. You're not staying in the delivery. There's a, a lot of those little things, but very, very simple stuff. Not very complex, not very detailed, trying to be very simple in the thought process with a guy, because that's how we would communicate in bullpens. You know, it wouldn't get extremely detailed. So, um, but even for yeah, guys who, like that. What, what if there's guys though out there who clearly they need some, some work from the mechanical side. Uh, I mean, do you think in your opinion and your experience are utilizing constraints the best way to, to go about that, to help improve those mechanics? Is it, you know, I know some guys do cues, like what, what would be from a pitching coach's perspective in your experience, some, some ways that you've helped pitchers improve their mechanics. Very, very rarely in game am I ever saying something that that was a mechanic oriented type thing. A lot of it is how the body is moving. So you go back to what I said earlier about how the brain impacts the body to move and then the body movement impacts how the ball flight takes place. So a lot of times when you get to the relationship that you have with that pitcher, you've learned some things to say to them that help them get a feel external cues are not the best way to go uh they, they become very they 
they actually take away from what I've experienced guys ability to feel something because they've shifted it from an internal feel to trying to come at it from an external perspective. So very rarely did I do that. If you're talking about a practice setting or a throwing program setting or a bullpen time, it all depends on where you're at with that athlete. Sometimes a, a variable uh, practice routine, something that you're varying for them is good, like giving them a different ball. Like I would do that a lot in bullpens. Guy throws a ball because what happens? He doesn't use the same ball for his entire outing. Foul ball, get a new ball. So I would flip pitchers new balls to get a new feel during bullpen settings. Um, sometimes have them doing certain warm-up drills where they were working on something to do with their lower body. So it was they were doing a band routine, but they were also utilizing a drill to try to impact how they were landing, what was happening with their lower body, how they were accepting ground force. You know, and now these are getting us into terms and things down the road I don't really want to do, but how they use their body is the best way to say it. And we would do that in, in a, a pre-throw routine with drill work or band work into a activation routine where we might change the drill to where it becomes something that they're working on another piece of their body and how their delivery was working um, into, you know, the actual throwing routine where there would be specific throwing drills that they would do that were going to either reinforce what they had just done or add to what, what they were feeling and how they were doing it. Um, you know, I, I tried to break it down on my end in a, in a biomechanics realm, um, you know, and, and what was happening in a couple of phases within, within a delivery. And I would then assign drills to guys based on what area we saw from, from data that they might need the most work with, um, whether that was pelvic rotation or, you know, whether that was a lead leg issue or it was more stability work in the pelvis leading into, you know, the trunk and torso work into a shoulder. So those were areas that I, on my end, I would look at. And I had a, a whole drill package um, that guys would get on their phone and it would be highlighted every day what they were going to do with their drill package that day. And we might not move off of that until they're done, you know, with something in particular. Um, so it's, it's interesting though. That I know you, that's a lot. No, yeah, it, it is, but it's all great stuff. But it, I'm interested to hear more on why not external because you hear that, well, you don't want to be internal. You want, you know, guys focusing externally to help their body self-organize. So I was wondering if you could, could you dig in as to why you, you don't think that's necessarily the best approach for, for pitchers? Well, I, I don't want to say no external. That's not what I meant with that okay. at all. Cause I think there are some, some things that you've obviously worked with a player to the extent that, that they have equated what you're saying to what they're feeling and what they're doing. That's external, right? So I'm giving them an, an external, but the drill work that I wanted them to do was designed for it to be a feel for them. So my external might be very simple, very small, or maybe not if I wanted them to just go right into a drill. If I have a kid that's super analytical 
and wants to process uh, everything that gets said to him, if I'm giving him external things, he's, he's going to be processing information and trying to uh, get a definition for himself from what I'm telling him externally that he may never lock into a feel that he's doing during a drill, during an activation. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yep. There are no external. I don't, I don't want that at all. I, I, I work with a player long enough to know that I learn how he equates or how he defines something that gets sent to him externally. And that should lead him to an immediate feel about what he's doing. I would, I would rather guys get more of the feels part of what they do from, from their drill progressions and drill work than me speaking to them about something external. Um, you know, and a lot of times if I'm trying to give them an external cue, they, it's not going to equate, you know, it, it, because they've got to feel it. So I would rather it go down the road of a very simple phrase or statement that they've come up with and identified that leads them into why we're doing some of the drills or feels uh, to feel what it is that we're trying to work on and improve. Gotcha. What about the uh, helping players with the mental side of the game? I'm sure like, you know, hitting same thing. It's about being present. So, I mean, do you implement meditation or are there, I mean, and if we've had Alan Jager on the show before too. He's awesome. Um, yeah, he's awesome. Like what, what are your thoughts on, on helping players with that? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's all a part of what I said earlier about one of the first things is to have a good routine. Yeah. I think the part is within that routine. Um, you know, you, you're going to go through periods where, you're doing something, you're feeling it, you're feeling it, you're feeling it, especially pitching. Hitting, you get somewhere between three and five pitches per at bat. You have to get your feels in the cage prior to, and you're hoping to repeat that feel. Pitching, you're going through your feels. If you're throwing 100 pitches in a game and you're throwing 20 every inning, you're getting an opportunity to feel something, you know, more often. And you have to have a routine that sets you back into that that process you know and i i've told guys go through your process what's your process have an idea about what your process recognize when things mentally your your self-talk is starting to send you down the wrong road and be able to adjust that self-talk because that's what happens first you know you you a situation starts to happen and you begin to speed some things up if you don't recognize that soon enough the self-talk begins to take you down a road that self-talk then has to be addressed. How do I get on the right self-talk? What are my self-talk items? And then what's my process to readjust? Um, am I grabbing the rosin bag? Am I standing off behind the mound? Am I looking at the scoreboard? Am I checking out a spot on my shoes? Am I looking in a direction in the stand? Like you have to have that process. You see guys do that all the time. Hitters you see step out of the box, stare at a spot on their bat, take a big deep breath, maybe go through a swing routine do certain things. I, I mean, everybody's got a process. You have to have that. And so I, I think it's critical. The guys, that's why I say, have a good, have a good, um, you know, routine. Um, and that routine engulfs in, in the, the mental aspect of things. My, my last question for you, Steve, it's a sensitive one. Um, it's the why word in, mm -hmm. in pitching. Have you, have you ever, I'm sure you have had someone who has, has gotten the yips at some point, but 
what have some have been the ways that you've been able to help them? And um, I know it's tough, man, but I, I'm just, I'm, I'm curious since you've been doing this for such a long time. Yeah, I've had, I've had a number of guys. In fact, probably the, the, the best story I could give you is Daniel Bard, who's pitching with the Colorado Rockies right now in the big leagues and has for the last three years. He went through a really tough time in his life, took him out of the game. He went from being a, a premier setup closer guy with the Boston Red Sox very early in his career. He was a, he was a first round, if not number one pick out of North Carolina by Boston pitched in the big leagues. Um, they tried to make him a starter. He lost who he was. Um, and when he was deciding to come back into professional baseball, he was deciding on a number of teams and he sat with me because I was the upper level coordinator for the Rockies at the time and at the big league level. And I did, did my interview with Daniel Bard before he made the decision who he was going to sign with. And I took him through a process um, to learn who he was. And I was really impressed with how he came through that. I've had, I've probably had a handful of guys. I just had a guy where I, I most recently was coaching in college that, that struggled with, with a little bit of that. And one of the things that I found and have found over the years is that one of the things, only one, and I can say that, that I don't think I have it cornered on the market by any means. Um, but I think one of the things I found is in the mental block is what, what does that player feel they're in charge of? If they don't have a say in their routine and in their process and what they're doing in their preparation, I think they tend to get lost. And when they get lost, that's when I think you see, start to see what I call the little man on the shoulder because that self-talk from that little man gets a little bit louder than it should be. Um, but I know from just in talking with Daniel Bard, and you can look up a lot of things on Daniel Bard, I think, and see this. He really discovered, came back to discovering who he was and what he wanted to do and how he wanted to do it physically um, and mentally. It began to, to help him put pieces back together again. Um, and and uh, I, I really find it to be the biggest thing for me with players that seem to go through that phase is to have a, a more of a say in that process. I think there's some other things psychologically that are going on that I have discovered in my time. Um, you know, some, some interesting things. I probably don't want to share that now just because that's, that's another wrap, but, but there are some psychological things and there are a couple of things that I have found that, that really have helped. And, and again, I, I don't profess to have the corner on the market. That's for sure. I don't have all the answers. That's for sure. Um, one guy that's just continuing to try to learn and develop, but I, I, those are the things that I've seen with some guys. Awesome. Steve, appreciate you coming on today, man. Um, it's crazy. When I saw your son, Troy, a couple of days ago at a tournament, I, I, I was talking to him. I was like, man, you look dead on your dad. Like, it's crazy how much you guys look alike. Uh, don't do that to him. I, I think he looks better than me. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, it's been a fun process I, I with him. And I think he's a good coach. I, I He has a heart that's amazing and cares about his players. and um you know his mom my wife is a, is a teacher and grew up in a teaching home so that that's where he gets the teaching aspect too i think yeah. but it's been fun awesome thanks thanks so much steve pad thanks for having me man anytime i wish you the best good luck and uh we'll talk soon appreciate it